Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is August 5th, 2013, and my guest is Eric Hanischek, the Paul and Jean Hanna Senior Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. He's the author of numerous articles and books on the economics of education. His latest book, co-authored with Paul Peterson and Ludger Wussmann, is Endangering Prosperity, A Global View of the American School. Rick, welcome back to EconTalk. Thanks for having me again. So what's the cause for alarm? Why do you think our schools and our, or our school system are, why are they endangering prosperity? The simple fact is that our schools don't produce a very high quality output. Our achievement levels as measured by international tests is considerably below what we see in other developed countries and many developing countries. And why is that so important? If we look at the last 50 years, we see that countries where the population has higher achievement, knows more math and science, grow faster. And their GDP gets larger because they have a more skilled population. Anything that affects the growth of GDP has huge implications for future well-being of societies. So, of course, the trial, there's many, many questions raised by the, those ideas. One being, how do we know, right? How do we know that our schools are doing a bad job? Casual, empirical, anecdotal evidence, casual evidence suggests that that's the case. Uh, There's a lot of horror stories that we hear. How do we know that those horror stories are real? And how, how do we get an idea of the magnitude of what we're talking about? About 1965, a group of international people said, why don't we test people in different countries and find out what the level of math skills uh, is across the different countries. And they had a set of, I think it was nine countries that volunteered to initially take a common test where you just have a math test that you translate into the native language of a different country and walk it around the world. It turned out that the U.S. didn't do particularly well on those we were one tests. Of the, we were one of the first nine. We were one of the first nine. The U.S. has participated in all these tests, even though people have not paid much attention to them until quite recently. Since then, there have been a large number of tests given um, some over a dozen different testing occasions, different grades, different subject matters that allow us to get a good fix on what is the achievement level of people in different countries? Now, one of the, the tests that you mainly focus on, in the, although there are many other pieces of evidence, but the test that you focus on that's given internationally is the PISA test. So talk about what that is. and who, I mean, Is that the same test in, from 1965, or is it a variation? Who writes it? Who takes it? It turns out that there are two different international testing consortia, but the PISA test is run by the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, which is the club of developed countries. 
And they started this test in 2000. It was an offshoot of the original test, which is now called the TIMS test, the Trends in Mathematics and Science Study. The PISA test is designed to measure uh, practical knowledge of people in math and science and reading, so it gives them a lot of word problems of practical uh, value, and then tries to assess how much do people know. The U.S. is below average among the OECD, among the developed countries of the world. How much below average? How, how bad is it? It's just slightly below average, um, but that misses the fact that there are some countries that are way ahead of us, including our northern neighbor in Canada, which is noticeably ahead of us. So... One obvious question when you talk about these kind of international comparisons is, is who takes the test. So what is the universe of people who take the test in the United States, and is it the same proximate universe who take the test in other countries? The PISA test is given to 15-year-olds, and it looks for a random set of 15-year-olds who are in school around the world. But it turns out that, uh, at least across the developed country, Almost uh, countries, almost all 15-year-olds are in school. So it's a random sa sample of the population of these countries. Public and private, or just public schools? Is it the same public across? Public and private. Okay. Because none of my kids have ever taken, as far as I know, uh, for what that's worth. Obviously, that brings the scores up. Just kidding, uh, boys <laughs> and girls. Um, so the United States doesn't do very well. And then the, the question is, you made the claim earlier that that there's a relationship between, which there obviously is, between human capital, that is knowledge, some measure of knowledge and growth. One thought that crosses my mind is that you said in 1965 the scores were, the United States didn't do particularly well. We've had a pretty good run over the last 50 years. Um, is that run about to end because over the last 50 years our schools have not done a very good job? And I, I, before I go on, I want to mention, and you also make this very clear in the book, you can rank countries according to how they do on a score uh, is on some tests, but it's not a zero-sum game. We don't really mind if other countries get ahead. Uh, it's good that everybody gets smarter and wealthier. I think the real point here is that we're not just, quote, behind. We're not doing very well, right? So it, having made that point, which you make also, over the last 50 years, we're the most innovative uh, I'd say I think we're the, probably the most innovative country in the world. We're a big country, but certainly on lots of measures of innovation, we're number one. Our school system doesn't seem to hold us back so much. Well, I think that we've had a number of advantages that we've been exploiting over this time period. To begin with, back in 1960, the U.S. was practically the only country that had universal secondary schooling for its population. We just had more years of schooling, more school attainment than everybody else. But more than that, um, other things affect economic performance and economic growth, one of which is the character of the economic institutions. So we've had free and open labor and product markets. We've had limited intrusion of government and a variety of other things, good property rights, a variety of other things that people generally attribute as being good economic institutions, and this has allowed us to use our resources better than most other countries in the past. And then 
by other measures, we probably have the best higher education in the world still today, so that our colleges and universities are superior. And then finally, we allow a lot of good foreign people to come into the U.S. and work here. Yeah. We have a good and immigration study policy, yeah. study here and then stay here. Now, the important thing about that list, which I think explains pretty well why we've done better than you'd expect given our achievement, is that all of those advantages are going away compared to other countries of the world. Everybody else looks at the U.S. They say the U.S. is a rich country. Uh, how did they get rich? They say, well, they've had a lot of education. Let's have education. They have good economic institutions. Maybe we should improve our economic institutions. And all of the other countries of the world are now trying to emulate the U.S. and doing a, some of them are doing quite a good job at it. And that would be fine. And as going back to my earlier aside a minute ago, I, that would be okay. It would be great if they learned how to – if other countries emulate our economic policy, try to create similar economic institutions – I think the more disturbing concern is that it's, again, it's not just that our lead has gotten smaller or we're behind in some international test competition. It's that our schools aren't very good. Our kids are not learning uh, what they might be able to learn. No, absolutely. Um, what the international tests show very clearly is what is feasible. You can look at these tests and say, right. as I look around the world, there are people in many other countries that can do a lot more math problems than our kids can. They have the skills to know the science better than our kids. And eventually, it looks like, according to all past history, this is going to catch up with us. And our growth rate is going to be slow compared to lots of other countries over the long run. What that means is that our economy will not be so dominant in the world, and that has ramifications for foreign policy, for defense policy, and for the well-being of our population. That's what we are endangering. That is the future that is uh, going to haunt us if we don't do something to fix our schools. I think uh, when, we, when I looked at the international comparisons that you present, I think uh, Singapore is number one. Was that correct? Am I getting that right? Well, it, it varies uh, about who you include. In the last PISA test, Shanghai, the city, took these tests and were way ahead of everybody else. But who knows who was taking the test in Shanghai? That's a, uh, an open Small, question. Yeah. But Singapore has done well. Finland, South Korea um, have done remarkably well compared to us. And well here is... If there's a measure of proficiency of, uh, say, in math, where I think in, in some countries it's in the 60s and 70 percent of the students taking the test are proficient, whereas uh, in the United States the number is quite a bit lower. What's the number in the United States? Well, the um, U.S. proficiency uh, rate is 32 percent, and Singapore has 63 okay, so percent proficient by the standard set in the U.S. of what proficiency means on our national assessment of educational progress. But they're using the same scale there when we're comparing the two the different nations. Absolutely the same scale. So one uh, thought I had, and that's alarming, uh, only in the sense, like you say, the glass could be a lot fuller, but 
Uh, one thought I had is that it wouldn't surprise me that in certain cultures and in certain countries that they might teach to the test a little bit in in the in an urge to get a higher international score. Do we know anything about that? I don't think there's any reason to expect countries to try to teach these tests. It's taken by a relatively small portion of the population of in a random set of schools, and schools don't know that they're preparing to be tested on these tests. Um, they teach to the test in the sense that they teach a curriculum that, if taught well, supports good performance, but uh, that's what we, we really hope that all countries do if they announce what kids should know and kids know it, then they do well in these tests. So I want to take an example that you give uh, of a question from the test, and I may butcher the question, so it's not going to be representative of what, uh, how easy or hard it is to read the question, et cetera. But the gist of it is if, if you have to stack three tennis balls and each tennis ball has a radius of three centimeters, how tall does the can have to be to hold three tennis balls? So to answer that question, you have to be able to know what radius is. That's a big. That's a big thing. So that's half the diameter. It's half the span of the ball. So that's so that's six per per tennis mm -hmm. ball. If the radius is three, then you got to stack them. There's three of them. So six times three. I know that that's you either got to see the three stacked on top of each other or just do the mental six times three that gets you to eighteen. And I think that's the correct answer, right? That's correct. That's a pretty easy question. You'd think more or less easy question, but you could you could debate whether. That was easy or not, and some, but evidently it's hard for some people. They don't get it. And one thing you hear sometimes, and I, and you and I have talked about this before on this program, I think, but you know, there's a there's a trend in mathematics education in the United States away from rote, away from drilling, away from multiplication tables. Uh, with a big emphasis on intuition and understanding. I'm a big fan of intuition and understanding, but I'm also a big fan of believing. My wife's a math teacher. We talk about this a lot. I'm a big fan that intuition really grows out of some drilling and rote. you got to have some basic facts. But there's a lot of romance in American education right now about, I don't know, you probably know the buzzwords, but about thinking about things holistically. And, and the right answer isn't what's important. It's how you can get there. So it, it wouldn't surprise me. That kind of question that some American, which does require some intuition, though. I've, you know, it's not a rote, pure rote question. It's not six times three. It's a little bit of piecing together a set of things. It's problem solving at a very simple level. M maybe other countries' math systems really emphasize calculation and, and that kind of thing. And, and maybe our math program emphasizes something else. Now, I think that's a mistake, personally, in math. It's not in other areas, maybe. But... But maybe we've gone off the rails in our math education. Do you think it's a, one, do you agree? And two, uh, is this a broader problem than just our math scores on the PISA test? Well, back on the original question, is this a problem that we're facing in the U.S. that other countries don't face? I think it's one that we might increasingly face because there is a new movement to essentially have something close to a national curriculum called the Common Core Curriculum, and that is emphasizing uh, deep learning, conceptual ideas, and so forth, and trying to de-emphasize anything that looks like mechanical or, or so on. And I agree with you in the sense that we want people to be able to be innovative and to think creatively, but... My view of this is that you have to build on what you know, that 
creativity springs from yeah, starting at a high level and then thinking of something different yeah. from the high level, not that we want uh, 15-year-olds to reinvent Newton's calculus right. because they're not prepared to do it and it took Newton a long time to yeah. do it. Um, so we might face that problem in the future. I don't think that's been the key issue in the past. I think the key issue in the past has been that we have asked people to know a range of um, both actual ideas like multiplication tables and, and ways to solve problems and to think broadly. It just hadn't been taught very well. Yeah. So, and do you want to comment on the, the other part of the question, which is, this is more than, in your mind, this is more than just a math problem, right? Oh, absolutely. It turns out that scores are pretty highly correlated with math and science scores and general other ideas, problem solving in other areas. They're also reading tests, I should say, but I don't, I don't understand how you do a international reading test, so I don't That's spend tricky. a lot of time on that. How do you translate a passage into different languages and get equal difficulty in the problem so that you can equate scores. I, I don't know how to do that. But in math and science, the scores are pretty highly correlated across countries, and they're highly correlated with any other measures we have. I want to raise one other issue, which, again, I think we've probably spoken about this, but it just fascinates me. One, when you made your list of advantages that America's had that, of course, interplay with the quality of our school system, one you didn't mention was our culture. And there are aspects of our culture, I think, that enhance our economic productivity and our richness of our lives. And there's some that are maybe not so, not so good for it. Uh, we have, I think, over the last 50 years, gotten more um, egalitarian, which has many pluses and many minuses. Uh, we've gotten into self-esteem, which has many pluses and many minuses for education. Uh, but one thing we do have, I think, is a tolerance for creativity and a and a admiration for creativity that other cultures don't seem to have. One thing I hear over and over again when, when foreign students come here is that the, that the students challenge the teacher. They, they find that shocking. In, in, in other cultures, you write down what the teacher says. In our culture, you, you're allowed to ask questions. And I think that's a huge advantage, I, I think, most of the time. Of course, as a teacher, it's, not, it's got some challenges, but uh, I like that. And I think... Um, carries us a long way, makes up for a lot of problems elsewhere. So I don't think this is just an issue of schools, frankly. I think it's a matter of our entire economy is based on the fact that people who innovate can get rewards for innovating, which is not the same in other countries. Yeah. I think uh, a number of years ago, I went to a conference in Korea, and the Koreans were very worried about what they perceived of as a lack of creativity in their students, even though their students were performing very well on these tests. And their response was to think about, well, maybe we'll just stop testing students, we'll, we'll open up our schools and have sort of free-form schooling as in the U.S. And my response was that that might have something to do with that, although we don't know how to redesign schools for creativity. But we do know that their economy doesn't reward creativity in the same way. One of my best graduate students 
ever was a Korean who got into trouble when he went back to Korea to work and his boss told him the answer to a problem and, and he basically said, oh, I don't see that. I don't think that's, that's the right w way to think about this problem. And he got into serious trouble because the economy doesn't reward young people Question, questioning, challenging, yeah. challenging, coming up with new ideas that are different than the way that has been declared as the right way. Yeah. And as you say, that, that's much broader than the education system that cuts through all kinds of aspects of a, of a nation's culture. Um, now, at one point, you try to measure some of the potential gains uh, from improving our scores and our, our ability. Give us some of the magnitudes. And at one point, I think you wonder whether let's be as good as Canada. We're not going to be as good as Shanghai or Singapore or South Korea, but... Can we do as well as Canada? Um, so what kind of gains are we talking about here, and how? what kind of change would that involve? How, how big a change are we talking about? Well, Canada um, performs right now um, slightly below Massachusetts, which is our best state. So it's not entirely away from us, but it basically says if our entire country could get to the level that Massachusetts has gotten in mathematics. What does history suggest about the economic implications of that? Having gone to high school in, in Massachusetts, albeit in 68-72, Rick, I, I think obviously it's a huge advantage for me. It explains a lot of my, it, my it, success. I, it shows <laughs> up all, all across, Russell. And there's no doubt that, that your Massachusetts yeah, education comes through. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. Uh, but, I, really um, didn't, I, I, I hate to tell you what I didn't understand as a high school student, but we'll go carry on. So I suggested that there was a clear relationship between performance on these math and science scores and the growth of GDP, it's actually a little bit broader than that. We can explain almost all of the differences across countries in their growth rates of GDP by two factors. One is, where did they start at the beginning of the growth period? So I'm looking at GDP growth between 1960 and 2000. If we measure what the level of their GDP was in 2000, and we measure their achievement scores, we can explain almost all the differences. Now, we measure their, where they started for a very simple reason. If you start way behind, all you have to do is copy somebody else in order to grow fast. If you start ahead, you have to in innovate and invent things. Well, if you take the relationship that historically was there between achievement scores and growth rates and ask the following question. What would happen to our GDP over the lifetime of somebody born today if in the next 20 years we could get to the level of Canada? Um, so it's not an immediate thing. We don't change our schools overnight, but we ramp up to Canada over a 20-year period and then use the historical relationship to project out what would that mean for the U.S. economy. The answer is stunning. It says that the average paycheck of all workers in the U.S. economy over the next 80 years would be 20% higher. 
So, so give us a 20-year period to get things fixed, and then the benefits of that flow over the next... 60 years. Yeah. And, and it even ramps up to then, because even once we have our students up to this high level, it doesn't really count until they get out into the labor force. So these projections assume that we wait till they actually become a significant part of the labor force effectively, and we allow for the growth that would happen. And then we look at the present value, the current value today of this, and we see that everybody's paycheck would grow by 20%. Now, this solves all of the problems, the fiscal problems that have been plaguing Congress over the last five years as well, they debate. This as long as they don't know it's as long as they don't know that it's going to get fixed, it would. But yeah, <laughs> they, they, don't worry. I think they would. I, I look at that problem as more of a instead of problem than a oh we've got a shortfall. But I take your point. It would it would make life easier in many dimensions. Uh, it does raise the question, by the way, since Massachusetts, what's the gap between say? Massachusetts in the middle. What's Massachusetts's test score proficiency versus, say, the middle or toward the bottom? How big a gap? You know, is it is it, well, I, is, I it the, is it forty two down to thirty four? What's the range in the, within I, the United States? I have the gap with California, which unfortunately is at the near the bottom of the rankings in this performance. The average student in California is at the twenty fourth percentile of a Massachusetts student. So if we looked at the entire distribution of Massachusetts kids in terms of their math performance, the average kid in California is only at the 24th percentile. So that would be a big, we're talking about a big difference. Well, so big difference. It raises the question, uh, what's Massachusetts doing well? Is, is there some secret, you, you know, you said in some ways it's easy to get better because you can copy. You think California could copy something Massachusetts is doing and get there? Well, it's it's always hard to say what precisely did Massachusetts do because they tried a lot of things and they actually improved um, actually over the period after you graduated from yeah, Massachusetts well, school. It was easier. I, it was, it was, those are the golden years uh, after I left. We they started improving when? Um, well, we only have. Actual data is from 1990 um, at the state today, level. At the state level, um, but they were um, not a, not at the top in 1990. They were, I think, they were about tenth in 1990, as as compared to Iowa, which was first in 1990. Today, Massachusetts leads all the states, and Iowa is 18th. So that there are movements that occur. The people in Massachusetts um, relate a lot of this to an improved accountability system where they had high standards set up and they tested these standards and held kids in school systems responsible for them. So graduation of students was dependent upon passing a fairly tough graduation test and the performance rating given to schools that had some impact impact on their future depended upon students getting up there. Um, but it's hard to pin down precisely what they did. They also spent a lot more money. Then there are other states like Florida that actually grew a little faster than Massachusetts over the 1990 to today period, um, and they spent virtually no more money. 
than they, they did before. Than they did before in 1990. In real terms, they're spending about the same. They emphasized uh, accountability and particularly reading performance in early grades. When Jeb Bush was governor, he had Florida Reads as the headline on every scrap of paper written in, in Florida. Um, Maryland and Delaware have done a lot better. They've emphasized other things. So it's not a single thing that stands out as if you do this, you will perform better. To me, it, it's actually only one simple thing. It's that you somehow end up with better teachers. Yeah, I want to come back to that in a sec, but I just want to, first I want to compliment you because uh, as many listeners know, I think we did we did a podcast on this maybe seven years ago. Rick, you are the probably the most well-known um, skeptic about the value of more spending as a way to get better educational outcomes. So I think it's nice that since most of our listeners don't have the data at their fingertips, that you did concede that Massachusetts did, did better and spent more. Then you had the point that, well, other nations, other states did better and didn't spend more. And your, so I just want to digress for a sec. Your confidence in the lack of a relationship between spending and educational outcomes, I think, has not changed in recent years. And it's always good when, when I talk to you for you to mention just the level of spending in the United States for all of the past. So, you know, a lot of people think, well, we know how to fix the schools. We just need to spend more money. And that's, Often a good way to get more of something, buy more of it, spend more on it. But uh, you remain skeptical of that, correct? Absolutely. I mean, since 1960 till today, spending per pupil in real terms, correct, inflation, inflation. Just, uh, adjusted, has increased more than fourfold. So that we're spending a lot more money. Now, just didn't spend enough, obviously. <laughs> it's one possibility. So uh, my interpretation, my follow-on to your general statement is that um, on average, we don't get any results from just putting more money in. That doesn't mean that money never has an impact or that it can't have an impact. It just says that the current incentives in schools aren't aligned with using funds in a productive way. And so we don't see great gains in performance of students just by putting more money in without doing other things. So let's get back to your to your. Well, I was going to ask the more general question, and then you can bring in your point about teachers. Um, schooling in the United States generally is a local issue. Uh, when I think about my own kids' schools, and when, when I think about being a teacher, there's a certain. It's really local. Uh, you know, one bad teacher can can ruin a year. One fabulous teacher can change a kid's life. Um, the generic phrase "better teachers" is a nice idea. What do you have in mind when you say that? And how, how would we get there from here? Because if you're interested in the book, it's a nice book that, that Rick's written with his co-authors. It's very short. It's pithy. It's got a lot of interesting charts. Uh, and it's, a, it's, not, it's, not a, it's not a long read. You can learn a lot from a, from a relatively short period of time. And you try to answer a lot of the objections, that some of which we've talked about already. Uh, but it does raise the question, of, you know, how do, how do we improve? How do we do better? Well, in my opinion, uh, all of the research points to the fact 
a, a teacher is the essential ingredient, and effective teachers are extraordinarily important. Uh, to put this in perspective of what we talked about before in terms of Canada, I did the following calculation. We know a lot about how much difference there is between the more effective teachers and the less effective teachers in terms of student learning. We know how much more a good teacher can get out of a class compared to a bad teacher. For example, a study I did a long time ago suggested that the best teachers in an urban district, all urban district, were getting a year and a half worth of learning in an academic year. The worst teachers were getting half a year of learning in an academic year. So that in one single academic year, say fifth grade, there can be one whole year difference in the amount of learning at the end, depending upon what classroom you are assigned to. If you get the good one, you get a free year. You get a year yeah. ahead with, you get the equivalent of a free year almost. Absolutely. So think of doing the following. Rank order all three and a half million teachers in the U.S. in terms of how effective they are. And start at the bottom end and sort of say, what would happen if we replaced the bottom 2% of the teachers with just an average teacher, not a superstar, right. or the bottom 4%? Well, the currently available evidence, which is pretty consistent across all kinds of schooling situations, is that if we could replace the bottom 5 to 8% of our teachers with just an average teacher, we could be Canada. We could get this 20% per year increase in everybody's paycheck for the next 80 years by thinking of replacing just the very poorest of teachers. Now, if you have a school with 30 teachers, we're talking about the bottom uh, two to three teachers in the school. And these are ones that aren't unknown. If you walk into almost every school in the country and ask people about the range of teacher effectiveness, very quickly they point to the two teachers that they don't think should be there. Everybody consistently, all the teachers, the principal, the parents, everybody points to the bottom two teachers. It's just that we don't have any system that leads to replacing those bottom two or three teachers with an average teacher. So let me, let me push you. I want to, we're going to go into this in some depth, but I, I want to push you on this for a sec. You, you could take any field. Uh, Rocket scientists, economists, uh, fast food checkout people, there's a range of skills. There's a range of ability. Uh, Major League Baseball players, there, there's some at the top and there's some who are lower. Uh, you know, if you said, you know, if you took the bottom two, per, two to five to eight percent of, of baseball players and, and, and on a team and you're, on a, their offensive ability, you could upgrade just the average player, you'd be so much better. But there aren't always enough to go around. So sometimes some people are better than others. You're saying something more than that, though, I assume. So I am saying something more than that. This is not the general electric program of every year lopping off the bottom 10%. I'm saying if we could do it once and increase essentially the average quality of the teaching force, we could get our students up to the level of Canada. So... It's a one-time 
thing that's behind this calculation. Of course, as you get teachers retiring and new teachers coming in, there's a small per- percentage, 5 to 8% of the new teachers that probably don't make it, and you have to worry about that. But every industry in the United States makes decisions about who is in the in their field and who stays in their firms. I mean, firms don't, most firms don't go out and just willy-nilly fire people, but they do make adjustments and convince people and counsel them out of the firm or sometimes fire people if they aren't up to the standards of the firm. And this happens all the time outside of the public sector. So again, your claim your claim is that not just that there's a group of teachers who are at the bottom, but there's a group of teachers at the bottom who are doing a really awful job. They're who harming be, kids. Who I mean, there's a group that's harming kids. And they're well recognized. And when you ask officials in schools or other teachers, they sort of shrug their shoulders and say, yeah, they shouldn't be here, but what can you do? So one of the things you hear sometimes when you talk about, for example, merit pay, meaning the idea that good teachers should make more than bad teachers, one of the arguments against that is that, well, it's too hard to measure. We don't know who the good teachers are. They don't know who the better teachers are. You're suggesting that it's not, there's nothing tricky here. Everybody, there's, there's a in any in any school, there's a consensus that there's a few teachers who, who are not doing their job. I think it's very obvious who they are. Now, designing a system that uses that information is what we have had trouble doing. What, we, what you need is an evaluation system that is viewed as reliable and fair and that you can use for these personnel decisions. We haven't had that in most schools until recently. We're starting to get that actually in large number of states now because state legislatures are demanding that the evaluation systems for teachers be improved. And that's why I'm somewhat optimistic at this point, because we've seen some fairly significant changes in attitudes toward evaluating and using evaluations and personnel decisions across a large number of states. Why do you think that's happened? Do you have any idea? I think that um, it perhaps is somewhat random from from the larger sense in that we've had a few governors that have taken leadership positions on this and that individuals have had an influence. I think that many people are now aware that we're our schools aren't up to snuff, that they're not competitive internationally, and they see on the other side that the economy is in international competition, and what's being bought and sold depends upon the quality of the firms in the economy, and all of a sudden, um, people are more alert to the fact that the PISA scores or the TIM scores in the United States are not competitive. And so legislators and policymakers and parents and others have started to beat a drum to try to get some improvement. You picked an example, which was getting rid of the worst teachers uh, that could make a big difference. And I, I, I'm sympathetic to that argument. It seems plausible to me. 
of course, that's just scratching the surface. You, you could obviously motivate, uh, inspire, lead uh, good teachers in any school system to become great teachers. They don't want to be that. Maybe replace them with better teachers. Or there, there's an enormous range of, uh, of potential improvement. But you point to a very dramatic example, which is bad teachers don't get fired in the public school system in the United States. Is that is that undeniably true? Is it usually true? Is it true in some states? And then my next question would be, is it true in Shanghai? Um, is it true in Finland? Is it true in South Korea? I think it has been nearly universally true in the United States that we do not fire the teachers that shouldn't be there, that are obvious. I don't think many other countries explicitly say we have a firing policy. I think what you see internationally is that the best school systems, one way or another, don't let bad teachers stay in the classroom for very long. Now, one way or another means there's lots of counseling, they move them to other jobs, there's training that goes along the way, whatever. It's hard to uh, sort of think of emulating what different countries do, but I think other countries have found that one way or another they can do this. Now, it's a hypothesis, but... Um, I think that the unions in some of our competitive, competitor com countries have become more accommodating to the idea that we have to have a good product. Um, our unions are only slowly getting around to the fact that having a good product might be important to their future. And I think that other countries, where all, all countries are unionized in terms of teaching, um, but other countries have moved to the position where the unions are working with the school systems to try to ensure that there's a high-quality product. It is a remarkable thing. It, it, there, there are obviously variations in pressure, political competition of various kinds. Uh, they're going to make a difference in how unions respond to the competitive environment where they're willing to embrace it and how much. But it's disgusting to me and shocking to me how badly run some of our schools are. And I'll be open-minded. I, I, I shouldn't say that. I'm not open-minded about it. It's not quite the right way to say it. I'm open to the possibility that there are many explanations for why public schools do very poorly in the United States in certain places. There's culture. Uh, there's home environment. There's a thousand things. But the unwillingness to embrace change in the face of poor performance is really, it's a scandal to me. And I find it remarkable that people put, that we put up with it. The people put up with that. I don't. I, I send my kids to a private school. I'm able to. I'm, I'm grateful. I'm blessed that I'm able to do that. But it seems to me that, that parents, it's, it's, they don't, they don't burn down the school. I, I, mean, I find it, 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 these are their children. If, they, if their children came home hungry every day and in rags after they sent them out, you know, well-clothed and fed, they wouldn't just say, well, there's nothing you can do about it. Why isn't there more outrage? Why isn't – because I don't think you're at the extreme of people who are upset at the quality of the current system. Current system's atrocious. So let me <laughs> – let me um, 
I think we're on the same page, but let me just expand a little bit on what you said first. This is not just the problem of inner city schools, of places where um, society and, and the schools have broken down. It turns out that the variation in teacher effectiveness is found across the board in some of our best public schools. Now, in the suburban public schools, there may be a little bit more movement of the worst of the worst teachers out of the schools. But in general, they tend to argue, well, we're doing well on our state test, so how can you object to what we're doing? And they also make it clear that they could do a better job if, in fact, we just funded the schools a little bit better and they sort of um, co-opt the parents into working with the schools because their kids are in the school and they can't really get into a huge fight right. with their current teachers and so forth. But this is a problem where our kids, uh, our white kids, um, don't compete very well internationally. Our kids of college-educated parents don't compete very well internationally. So that the test score story I told you before is not just one that we have more minorities or... Which is a common argument some people advance to explain challenges we face. That's the argument that's used all the time in California, even though the... Kind of a racist argument, seems to me. It's a racist argument to suggest, first, that we can't educate people that aren't white children of college-educated parents. Um, And then, secondly, it's incorrect. Yeah. Um, That's not what's driving... The situation. I was struck. There's a fascinating chart in your in your uh, in your book that looks at proficiency on one of the exams just based on parents' education, and it's a pretty dramatic relationship. Uh, if your parents didn't finish high school, you don't you do very poorly. I think it's twelve percent. If you get to if your parents went to college, the average proficiency is forty four. So it's much. You have a huge advantage if your parents went to college, still don't do very well, (laughs) uh, but you do have a a dramatic advantage. So there are, and of course, there's a thousand things going on at the same time. There's where you live and what kind of school your kids are in. Um, I'd lost my train of thought before. Can I just pick up on that for a second? Um, It's absolutely clear that parents are really important in this whole thing, and we haven't discussed that, but what all the data suggests is that if your parents are more educated and in general higher income that goes with that, the kids do better. But the data suggests that that is not completely determinative, that good schools, as as I mentioned about this inner city school where some of the teachers were getting a year and a half worth of, of learning gains each year, um, good schools can make up for the difference in family background. It takes extra work, and some of these schools are really hard to work with because the parents aren't being very supportive. But we know how to deal with our schools. We know how to improve our schools. That's where we have to work. We're not going to go in and have the government intruding into the families and trying to change what the families do. Right. There's a point I want to come back to, which is 
somewhat related to this, but I'd, I'd lost, I'd forgotten this point I wanted to make earlier and get your reaction to it, which is that you had mentioned that, that in other countries, unions have gotten more interested in, in outcomes and maybe a little less interested in job security or realizing that there may be a relationship between the two. What interests me is that it strikes me is in the United States, we have this wild thing called homeschooling, which is uh, really a fascinating cultural movement, uh, somewhat based on religion, but not not entirely. We have vibrant private schools, which a lot of other countries don't have. We're wealthy enough that we can have private, a, a very vibrant <coughs> private school system. So in many ways, the public school system is is under some competitive assault. Not much, because they've insulated themselves for quite a bit of it, but overall... There's still a lot going on that you'd think would cause there to be some movement toward more accountability, more caring about about outcomes. And with the advent of the internet-based educational opportunities, uh, the massive online open online courses, so-called MOOCs, uh, Khan Academy, and, and immense resources for, for self-education that I think are only going to get better – you think that this would start to put some pressure on the public school system to be a little more motivated? I think that the public school system are, at the very minimum, going to change dramatically. We do have technology that can dramatically improve um, over the instruction that we see in some classes. And I think that we'll see that more and more. We haven't quite figured out how to harness that yet. True. We haven't figured out how to get classroom teachers using technology to be more effective. I think this is partly an incentive issue. Yeah. Um, it's also, we, a, it's in its infancy. It's going to, people, are, we're going to learn a lot in the next 10 years. Um, I think we are. In general, nobody wants their kid to just sit in front of a TV screen for 18 years. Yeah. But. But they might prefer to sitting in front of a really unmotivated teacher for 18 years. So. Well, th there are some teachers that they might prefer it to, and they might not do it for 18 years, yeah. but they might substitute for one out of five teachers that is doing a really yeah. bad job. And we're going to see a lot more of that, how quickly we see it and whether that brings the U.S. back into line with what other countries have shown that they can do is an open question. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, I want let's put some closure on this teacher discussion. I'll move on to a, a final topic on the on the. And actually, one more thing though first, which is, I think I mentioned Finland. You had mentioned it before, and occasionally, uh, I get emails and and econ talk listeners email me when we talk about education. If private incentives are so powerful, which I believe they are, and if a private school system charity providing scholarships potentially for poor kids would do better than the current system. Now I want to move to a fully private system. People say, what about poor kids? And poor kids are being served very poorly by this current system that's supposed to be for the general goods, atrocious. So my listeners then will say, well, what about Finland? Finland's, that's a government system. They're doing well. So you know more about Finland than I do. Um, tell me a little bit about Finland, and then, I, then we'll, we'll close on this teacher quality issue. Well, Finland is this tiny little very cold country uh, at the top of Europe that has, over the last number of years, at, at least over the last 30 years, managed to lift the achievement of its students. 
there's a lot of controversy and a lot of people want to draw different lessons for how they did it. Um, we have basically one data point, one observation, and we have about 15 lines that we can draw through that data point, and everybody chooses their favorite line. Um, so some say, well, it's all that they don't test students, and others say it's that they start school late. Others say that uh, it's teacher quality, and I tend to, to agree with that. Uh, um, it, for some reason, being a teacher in Finland seems to be very, very attractive, and more attractive than you would guess given the relative salaries, which aren't all that high in Finland. Um, so lots of people want to go into teaching. Um, how, how they did it, I'm not sure, or how they maintain it. Um, others say, well, it's the fact that teachers can make their own decisions about what they teach. They have a lot of autonomy and aren't pushed by rigid things. Others say, well, it's, it's that Finland is a very homogeneous society without any poor people. Finland starts with the letter F. We should change the United States <laughs> to any United number States. Of these arguments, um, it's clear that if teaching was a more attractive profession and we had a wider choice, our schools could probably improve. How we do that, it's unclear. Um, Finland is a successful story, as are several other countries that have improved over time. Canada has improved over time. Uh, uh, Germany has improved in recent years after being flat. Again, there's some research that suggests a number of things that are consistent across a wide range of countries. <clears throat> One is having more choice that you mentioned about where parents have more ability to choose what schools they're in. Another is pay for performance or some relationship between uh, rewards in teaching and rewards in schools in the performance of schools. Another is having a good accountability system where you measure what performance is and hold schools somewhat accounted for, accountable for it. And a final, at least within the most developed countries, is having more local decision making. This is actually the model that is in the back of my mind. You hold schools and teachers responsible for the performance of their students, for the value added of the teaching of the school, and then let them make decisions about how to get there, yeah. um, which seems like the right answer that we see throughout most of the U.S. economy. Right. Um, where we don't tell people how they should, you know, we don't tell automakers that they ought to hire so many people per shift and have so many students per class, the equivalent of students per classroom, we, we let them, competition forces them exactly. to find ways to do better. And then the there's the accountability system of the economy that sorts out who's doing a good job and who isn't and which the consumers like and which they don't like. But we don't have that well developed in schools and we sort of say, well, how can we run a school that looks like that? In fact, there's a um, talking about using market forces is a pejorative term in, in education, even though the U.S. economy has thrived by, in fact, having market forces 
making decisions about where things are produced and what's being produced. Well, my sarcastic response to that, of course, is, but education's different, Rick. And, of course, it may be. Uh, but I think the serious response to that came up in the conversation I had with Diane Ravitch a long time ago, which is that I think importing market mechanisms into non-market processes can be problematic. Um, but to me, market means voluntary. Market means competitive. And adding more voluntary choice and competition in the school system, I think, would be a good thing. To come full circle now back to this question of how to get better teachers, you know, giving public school principals the right to fire teachers, I can understand that might not be the right way to get there. Um, have you thought about ways to, which is what a private system would do? So if, that's a good example of the point I'm trying to make, which is, you know, you don't, in a private system, the private teacher has to face the threat of, of dismissal. So let's give the public school principal that right. That'll solve it. Well, if you don't have everything else that goes with it, maybe it won't. So have you thought about ways to improve teacher quality that might be politically plausible and, and realizable in this current environment? Well, there are several forces that are starting to push us in that direction. Whether they'll make it or not uh, is unclear yet. But the... Best example is actually Washington, D.C., where Washington, D.C. has, by its contract four years ago, put in place a teacher evaluation system that actually leads to serious personnel decisions. The best teachers is measured by either student performance or outside ratings can get huge increases in their base salaries and the worst teachers get fired so that in the last three years Washington has given bonuses to some thousand teachers and they fired 300 teachers which is amazing which is so different than history how'd that how happen? It, how did this how did the how did the teachers union <laughs> in Washington DC accept that that bargain given that they fight it relentlessly everywhere else same too. Well, they fought it in Washington, but the school system in Washington is a peculiar one because it's actually run by the U.S. Congress. Right. Well, that's true. And the U.S. Yeah. Congress has an influence on it. But what we've seen is another dozen states or so that have dramatically changed labor laws as applied to teachers. They have lessened the impact of tenure. They have increased the time till somebody gets a more permanent job. They have called from the state capitol that each school district has to have a serious evaluation system that takes into account student performance. There have been a series of actions by state legislatures that I think suggest that we might have some movement. The other thing that these actions of state legislatures do is that they put pressure on the teachers union to cooperate and to participate in designing a system that everybody can live with. Until now, uh, if somebody said, well, the evaluation system isn't very good, let's sit down and have a, a plan for how to improve this. And the teachers union say, yes, it's really important to have a good evaluation system. Let's have a committee. And the committee meets for five years and may or may not have a conclusion at the end of five years, but nothing happens. Um, 
now the legislators in the legislatures in different states are saying, you got to have a system in place. And this leads to some more serious discussions about how should we evaluate our teachers. Well, that's encouraging. Uh, I think. Um, should, I have to add one other yeah, thing. Yeah. We keep saying teachers. We shouldn't say teachers. We should say teachers and administrators because you can't have the principals of schools and the administrators operating with a different set of incentives yeah, than the teachers. For sure. So you have to reward and punish principals who get the same kind of success that we're looking for in teachers. Otherwise, then principals could, if they wanted, hire their cousins yeah. or whatever. But you, know, you could imagine a test uh, that would see whether teachers are keeping up with the field or staying current or at least paying attention or have some basic proficiency in mathematics or science or anything. But uh, it'd be harder to test administrators to see whether they're proficient in administration. But you can perhaps measure some outcomes for the schools as a whole, I guess. It's measuring the outcomes for the schools that's the key, and it's also for the classroom. It turns out you mentioned, well, we could test teachers or find out if they'd had the right professional development or so on. All of the research suggests that none of these are very predictive of effectiveness of teachers yeah. or whether they get better or worse. And so there appears to be no substitute for paying attention to what you care about, and that's student learning and student achievement. Yeah, um, I was actually talking to my wife yesterday. Uh, we, were, we were taking a hike together and just chit-chatting about the challenges of improving one's own teaching. And um, you know, her bottom line, which I think is so true, is it's just really hard. It's really hard to be a great teacher, to be a good teacher. And it's not something that's easily – you're not born – it helps. There's some genetic advantages that a good teacher could have, but it really is a craft that requires focus and a desire to improve, and it's not easily done. So I think that's part of the challenge. Well, that's part of the challenge, but um, it is a craft, but it's not clear how you develop that craft. Correct. Um, if I were, were talking about woodworking, yep. I would know how to put together a course that taught people how to do good woodworking. Now, there might be differences in the quality of that yep. you get at the end, but I would know the basic ideas. When we look at schools and education schools, we don't see that they have a good idea of what to do in order to create good and effective teachers. So you said, well, they're not born, but at some point you might say that the ability to teach is pretty fixed in teachers, and we ought to just hire on the basis of that and not other things. I'd be part of it. I, I really do think that a great teacher, let, let, let me try to say it a little more uh, carefully. It's easy to, not easy, but I know we, you and I can identify a great lecturer, somebody who's a great public speaker, and a lot of people, I think, from their college experience, think of their favorite teachers as people who were spellbinding or funny or passionate, all of which are useful in, in, a, in a college setting, in a lecture setting. We're thinking about K through 12, which we tend to forget because it was a long time ago for some of us. It's so much more complicated than that. And the skills, I would say one of the most important characteristics is devotion. Devotion, there are devoted teachers who will, even in the worst environments, 
even with the worst colleagues, they'll work hard no matter what. But there will, there's a huge range of folks who will only work hard if they're motivated and need to be motivated. And I don't think our school system does a very good job of that, and that's hard to do. There's a little bit of that. I'm not sure that I agree completely with you on that. Um, what we have had is a few experiments where we offer fairly sizable amounts of money to people if they do a better job. And what we've seen is that student learning hasn't increased that much. Has in not. These, has not in these experiments. And what I, my interpretation of this and, and some other evidence is that the vast majority of our teachers today are trying really hard to do a good job. And they are doing the best they can. I mean, they could do a little bit better, of course, but um, they're working as hard as they can and trying to be effective. They don't want to be a failure. Yeah. And some are just better at it than others. I mean, you, you and I were together at the University of Rochester a long time ago, and I remember that I was in charge at one point of assigning people to teach, and I had you teaching the Intermediate Microeconomics course. 51, if I remember the number correctly. And, Is that right? Um, it may or may not have been. But, not sure. One um, I didn't know beforehand that you were going to be the spectacular lecturer and spectacular teacher you were, um, and I don't think you were trained at all. Well, no, for sure not. To do that. Thanks for the kind words, but I certainly but, wasn't trained. I don't know if I was fact, spectacular or not, but... Um, I, when I taught your students after you had them in intermediate microeconomics, could tell the students that had had you and those that hadn't because they could think through hmm. economic problems. So I have always rated you highly in your classroom teaching, but it's not something that is due to the University of Chicago providing you well, that's for sure. with, a, <laughs> with a lot of training in how to teach microeconomics. Well, thanks for the kind words. I, I do think um, it is an interesting phenomenon that at the college level, we certify people as qualified to teach because they finished a PhD and watched a bunch of other people teach. And then we say, good luck. Whereas at the K through 12, we reward people for getting a degree in something called education, which we don't require our college professor to have, good or bad, uh, which you'd think would make you a much better teacher if you, you know, as you said, if you knew what the craft required, <laughs> you spent, you, you majored in it, the craft, not the right. subject matter. You majored in the craft, or even, you may have even gotten a master's degree. You've specialized in the craft at an advanced level, and I don't think there's any evidence that training of that kind is useful in the classroom. I, I don't know. No, that's what we found. Um, all of the studies of teacher performance have tried at the same time to identify what are the characteristics or the background or training that makes for people that are particularly effective or not. And this research has been a dismal failure in the sense that it has not identified a set of characteristics that you want to develop in your education school or that you want to sort on and look for. Yeah. In fact, it's worse than that. It's all of our standard measures of teacher effectiveness, which include years of experience in teaching. It includes whether you have a master's degree or not. It includes whether you're fully certified according to the state standards. 
uh, it includes whether you've had the, uh, some amount of professional development. None of these things are closely related to effectiveness in the classroom. So we go around and sometimes we even reward those things, like salaries are determined by experience and academic degrees, even though they have nothing to do with effectiveness. So we're way off the subject now, but it's interesting, so I'm going to push on. Do you think there's, if you were running a school, you're a principal, how would you, how would you staff? How would you hire? What, what would be the criteria that you would use, given that everything you say suggests that the research says we can't identify those and, and can't figure them out? I'd make my best guess at who would do well in the classroom. I'd have an interview system and maybe even have a practice lesson or something like that, recognizing that I'm not going to be very accurate in that guess. I would then evaluate who does well in the classroom and who doesn't, and I would give large rewards to those who did well in the classroom to try to keep them in the classroom, and I would make decisions that some people should be doing other jobs. Which is, I think, what a private principal, principal of private school does, and probably is not very much what a public school principal does. No, precisely. That's precisely the case. My guest today has been Rick Hanischek. Rick, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thanks, Ross. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.